Welcome to episode number 33 of the Heal Thy Skin podcast. I'm Marnie, your host, and today I'm speaking with Dr. Garda Khan, Network Coordinator for the US and FGMC Network. This episode is two of a three-part special series in accordance with International Day of Zero Tolerance for Female Genital Mutilation on the 6th of February. Some people say that FGMC is a rite of passage, something families do to help prepare girls for adulthood or marriage. Just because this is a tradition in some places does not make it right. This practice is harmful and therefore wrong wherever it occurs. President Barack Obama in 2016. Our guest today, Dr. Garda Khan, is an established health program analyst whose career, advocacy and research has centred on global and domestic issues concerning the health of women and children. She's keen on building connections with network members and collaborating organisations, working closely with the network's steering committee to operationalise the network's core priorities and manages the day-to-day operations of the network. Prior to this role, Dr. Khan served as project director for the community-centred FGMC Prevention Project at the George Washington University Milken Institute School of Public Health and senior fellow in the American Public Health Association in the Maternal and Child Health Section. Within these roles and within her personal capacity, Dr. Khan is dedicated to raising awareness on FGMC and protecting women and girls from this harmful practice. In recognition for her work on FGMC and women's health, Dr. Khan has received the Women's Rights and Gender Equality Award from the Global Women's Institute. She's also received the Nashman Prize for Community-Engaged Participatory Research, as well as the Global Health Service Award and the Public Health Award from George Mason University. Dr. Khan joined us from her hometown of California in the US, and I started by asking Dr. Khan what she thought was the biggest misconception about female genital cutting in developed countries, which is the topic of today. Well, there is a misconception among individuals and communities in developed countries that FGM happens only abroad and that it's an African problem or it only happens in Africa or it happens to the other. It doesn't happen in developed countries and that it's concentrated within one continent. And that is really not the case. And it's mainly due to the how awareness of FGM has manifested throughout the years. But what we're trying to do as a global movement is to make sure it is well understood that FGMC is a global problem. It happens mm. everywhere. The only place that it hasn't been documented is in Antarctica. And, and so it's the type of problem that doesn't see any geographic boundary or religion or culture. It's seen across all different ethnic groups and communities and countries. And so it will require a global response. And so the main misconception is that it's just this focus problem. that And that also comes at a point of criticism where everyone's saying, those who have that misconception would say, well, if it's just so focused, why hasn't it been eradicated yet? Why hasn't it stopped? If it's just happening in Africa, and again, here lies the importance of us making sure that everyone is aware that this is definitely a global problem. 
Yeah, so far reaching and we'll cover some of those points today. But I think some of them being that it's a taboo subject, we're talking about the female body, we're talking about something that happens behind closed doors. There's been an, a cultural practice that has been ongoing for many, many generations. There are lots of reasons why it is still unfortunately occurring. So Dr. Khan, tell us about your career. How did you start getting involved with the US and FGMC network? Well, as I was doing my doctorate in public health at the George Washington University School of Public Health, I came across this project from the chair of my dissertation, who Dr. Karen McDonald, who had just received a grant from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services to do research on the healthcare needs and experiences of FGM survivors in the U.S. And Dr. McDonald, she was a PI on the study, and she asked me if I wanted to get involved. And I was very reluctant in the beginning because I didn't know anything about FGMC, but then with a background in women's reproductive health and maternal child health, I thought this would be a great learning experience. And we started doing our research within the DC, Maryland, and Virginia area. And as, when we first started the project, I thought, oh, how are, we're not going to find anything here. This is not um, happening here. I had came in with that same skepticism and misconceptions that we had just talked about in the previous question of it can't be happening here. We started going into communities and talking to individuals and communities within the DMV area. It really hit me that this is definitely a problem because we were seeing so much feedback from survivors and community members that we were working with through this project. And through that whole process, I got to know these amazing individuals and organizations that are working on this issue. And it just, their courage definitely inspired me to make sure that this topic, ending FGM and preventing FGM and supporting survivors is definitely a goal of my career is, is to go forward with this in support of the new friends I made in this journey, but also in solidarity with all the women and girls around the world who are at risk or are living with this issue. Yes, and such a deep purpose. I can hear about your story. Now, Dr. Khan, tell us more about FGMC in developed countries. Well, in developed countries, we know that FGMC is a problem. We are seeing many survivors coming forward and experiencing different health problems related to FGMC. And we are hearing many cases of FGMC occurring in developed countries all around Europe and North America. And the numbers that we have around FGMC within those countries, however, are not precise. They represent indirect estimates of what is really going on when it comes to FGMC in those countries. And we are in need of more research to build the evidence around the exact numbers of women who have experienced FGMC or uh, survivors of FGMC or women who are at risk of undergoing FGMC within these countries. However, we see it predominantly happening 
within diaspora communities. However, there is no particular race or religion or culture or country where we see this happening more or diaspora community that we see this happening more than others. For example, in the U.S., we have different diaspora communities that have demonstrated numbers of women undergoing FGMC, such as communities from Somalia, Sudan, Egypt, Malaysia, Indonesia, India, and so on. But we also have survivors who've come forward from predominantly white Christian communities who have also undergone FGM. And that going back into the history of a country like the U.S., we do know that clitoridectomies, which is a form of FGMC, was performed up until the late 1960s as a means of curing masturbation or hysteria. And so this has been happening in the U.S. for quite some time now. And it's not just within the context of migration or diaspora communities. And we are seeing it still being practiced among certain white Christian communities as well here in the U.S. And so it's a complex issue that needs more research in order to better understand what's really happening in developed countries. But again, we do need to build the evidence base and we do need to address it immediately with more urgency as we are seeing more and more women coming forward sharing their stories and sharing their experiences and with seeing the first case of the criminal case of FGM in the US where a doctor had performed FGMC on nine girls in Michigan so mm. factors may make us really want to just point to the need for more research and a better understanding especially again with the context of migration and evidence of practice in the US Wow, that's so alarming. So who is at risk of FGMC and what are some of the risks of FGMC in developed countries? We know as well as the physiological, psychological impacts, which we'll go into in a moment. Also, the hygiene practices, especially in developing countries, is quite poor where instruments are unclean and then there's increased risk of things like infection and tetanus. So is FGMC happening in essentially, you know, a backyard type setting? in developed countries or is it happening in a hospital setting? Who's actually performing these procedures when we're talking about a first world country? Well, within developed countries, there is no clear data about who's performing it. Again, we are still putting forward the research on what's really going on in the U.S. in terms of the practice being practiced here versus the vacation cutting, as I mentioned earlier. Is it being practiced here or practiced abroad? But we have seen the first criminal case of FGM in the U.S. that is currently underway where a doctor was accused of performing FGM on nine girls in Michigan. And this case really brought attention to FGM in the U.S. And that also brought attention to our laws here in the U.S., both our federal law and our state laws. And that's a whole different conversation. But within the U.S., it could be happening under the supervision of a medical doctor. And or, as I mentioned before, in talking to some survivors or the research that's being done on looking at survivor experiences, they might have been cut abroad 
and in that sense by a medical doctor or a specialized FGM practitioner or a nurse or a some kind of a community member who performs FGM on the girls in their country of origin. But we are seeing globally is this general rise in medicalization. We don't have, again, the data, the clear data from the U.S. or other developed countries. But overall, in developing countries, this is a phenomenon that's alarming because of this. And we, we see it as an unintentional consequence of focusing on the immediate risks of FGM. So within the narrative that's been put forward for FGM prevention, there was always this focus on the hemorrhage and the shock and the infections that can immediately happen when experiencing FGM. And so some communities turn use that as a way to, well, let's let's turn towards a doctor to, to perform this. If having it being performed by a cutter in the village is going to put my daughter at risk, they would still do it. But having a doctor perform that under more sterile conditions. That's really interesting. And you mentioned, I just would like to hear a little bit more if you know, I'm not sure if you know or not, but in regards to, you said that there were some Christian networks that were doing this practice up until the 60s. So did that stop because there were some laws put in place or was it more just that beliefs changed and times changed? So we saw that happening less and less. It's both. So in terms of the belief, in, in terms of better understanding what the origins of hysteria and masturbation is from, again, that's a different conversation. But also the recommendation that was put forth by the American pediatrics was also refuted and taken down. So, Yes, of course. So what are some of the physiological and psychological impacts of FGMC for, say, U.S. residents or those that are in developed countries that might be a little bit different to those that are in their native countries with their community that been in for their family a whole of time? In terms of the psychological impact here in a developed country, we need to look at the context of migration. And that's when, if we're specifically looking at diaspora communities that are practicing, then looking at the context of migration, we see this idea of the feelings of isolation and feeling different and feeling like the other when being exposed to situations where their FGM status is revealed. So we see a lot of survivors of FGM who've shared stories on how their encounters with their healthcare providers were extremely traumatic because of how their healthcare providers react to them when seeing mm. this wouldn't be happening in a country of practice because of care providers would be used to this. But in the U.S. context where healthcare providers are not trained in that specific area of understanding what FGM is and may, some of them may not have seen FGM at all, ever and don't understand it. And so this expressions of shock and dismay, and some survivors have even used the word disgust from their healthcare providers is re-traumatization, went through FGM. There's also this, within the context of migration, there's this anti-immigrant sentiment going on in different countries, developed countries. And when women need to seek for their health, want to seek help, but can't because of fear of being stigmatized or ostracized because of what, or even blamed 
for the problem they're coming to actually address. It's a different experience in that sense where the post-traumatic stress is exacerbated by these experiences of re-traumatization. And there's also within the social context that women live in here in the U.S. where the outlook on sexuality might be different from a country of origin and so feeling that they're less than someone who hasn't been cut or feeling incomplete or feeling different. The psychological impact of that on women and has many detrimental effects in terms of fitting into the social structure, especially when it comes to conversations and discussions around sexuality. It's a different context altogether when it comes to these factors. The, the anger and shame that women feel here might be different from what women in a practicing country would experience. Um, the reaction towards their families uh, also could be different and that the impact on the family relations is some a factor to also consider when it comes to mental well-being and psychological health because of how it plays out within the context of a non-practicing country. Yes, there's just so many considerations, isn't there, for these survivors. So we know that in some areas that girls as young as five experience FGMC. Are we seeing that perhaps in developed countries, you mentioned these vacations that they will go on, that these practices are done later on in life, or are we still seeing it in a similar age group? Overall, globally, the trend has been a decrease. The age of which women are cut is decreasing. And that's, again, an unintended consequence of focusing on the health impact or immediate health impacts. If the experience itself is said to be traumatic, which it is, then to avoid the trauma that comes from the experience itself and to avoid the girls actually speaking about what happened to them, the age becomes less and less and less. And so that's an overall trend we're seeing. In terms of, again, when we're looking at a country like the U.S., we don't have clear data about the age of cutting. When these women were cut, there are individual localized studies within different cities or different states that have surveyed specific communities to better understand the age of cutting. But again, they're local to a specific city or a culture or a country of origin and so on. And that's why we really need more research into what's going on, not just in countries of practice, but also in developed countries as well. We don't want to, we certainly want to protect all women, or, and especially since this is happening to girls, all girls from this practice and prevent them from undergoing this. But in terms of, and again, each country or culture or group might have a different age that they are, that they usually perform this practice in. So it could vary and so on. But in overall, the age is become going lower and lower and lower. Yeah, which is so sad. And I guess for girls that are so young, they wouldn't understand what's necessarily happening. And later on in life, they might not either remember or 
be able to articulate what happened to them as opposed to if they're, you know, in their teens, etc. So what are some areas or countries or cultures that still practice this that might be a surprise? And really the purpose of this question is just to highlight the extent of this. We talked about it a little bit at the very beginning, but if you're able to elaborate a bit more, Dr. Khan, that would be fantastic. So countries that might be surprising is countries in South America, for example, like Colombia and Peru, that there is data showing that this has been practiced. However, we don't have data of recent. I think the most recent has been 2013. So we're not sure exactly if the practice has stopped. Many people are shocked to know that this happens also in South America. There's also countries in Russia also. There's there's data coming from Russia. Different countries, there was a perception that it was only specific countries in the Middle East, like Sudan and Egypt and Iraq and Yemen. But now there's more and more data coming from all countries within that region or majority of countries within that region. India and Pakistan, Indonesia, Malaysia are also surprises that happens in those countries. Of course, we know that it's always a shock to know that it happens in developed countries as well. Mm, Yeah. And do you see a trend in the research that certain countries, certain religions will choose a different method or a different level of FGMC or is it varied? It's definitely varied. We do see some in certain countries where religion has been recently utilized as a tool for perpetuating the practice. There's a move in certain countries to perform a lesser version of the practice just in the name of lessening the harm from a religious perspective. But that still doesn't say that it needs to be stopped. It's a complicated issue where the, let's say, for example, some communities use the word sunnah as a lesser form of FGM, but then sunnah could, that term could mean different things to different people. It could mean type one or type two or type three where you are. So it doesn't really mean that a lesser form of FGM is okay at all. We know that. Different forms are, you know, type 1, type 2, and type 3 go in sequence of their severity. However, they're all equal in terms of their impact on a woman's life and in terms of our messaging around stopping FGM. We want to make sure that the concept of zero tolerance for any form is always something that we put forward. Yes, I think that's a really good point as far as while the physical aspect of it may change, the physiological and psychological impacts may not, and it will depend on that individual on how it affects them socially and and many factors of their life. It's not just on the severity of the actual physical changes itself. As far as restoration and reconstructive surgery Are there any practices in the U.S. that are offering this service? I know it's something that is under-researched, say, on the other side of the world in the U.K., but uh, do you see any kind of practices, plastic surgeons or reconstructive surgeons, offering these types of services? 
Yes, there are certain clinics in the U.S. who are now offering these services. There are certain organizations that actually support the funding for women who are in need of this restorative surgery. So even though the research is growing right now, and so it's interesting to see how this is going to play out within the U.S., especially with different laws that are, you know, being put forward on FGM within different states. And we do, again, want to push for the fact that we do need more evidence, but this is something that many women have opted to do. And there are specific surgeons and clinics in the U.S. that are offering these services. We, Dr. Pierre Foldes, who's a French doctor who pioneered the restorative surgery, has trained certain practitioners here in the U.S. to be able to carry on that type of surgery and his method. The Global Women Peace Foundation in D.C. is one of the organizations that raises funds for women who are opting for this type of surgery. But again, we need to emphasize that it's not just the reconstructive surgery process itself, but it is a holistic healing process that requires much attention. And it's not just that entail having the surgery performed, but also having months and pre-surgery therapy and counseling and also just determination of whether restorative surgery is even possible or is an option, and then and preparation for that whole process, and then post-therapy and counseling, and really helping women through that whole process of getting prepared and going through the surgery, and then healing from that process. Because again, it is a, it's another surgery that is performed in that area, and it, it could function as a re-traumatization in and of itself, as does giving birth, as does a pap smear. All these different health consequences or health issues that women go through function as a re-traumatization because it's happening in that area in which they experience severe trauma. Yes, and I, I'm not sure on the status in Australia as far as if it's covered by Medicare or, or healthcare or if it's something that has to be private. But I know, for example, here, if something, there's many, many conditions that might have quite significant psychological kinds of impacts on a person, but because from the medical side, it's seen more as a cosmetic procedure, it's not necessarily covered. And I'd be interested to know a little bit more about how that happens in the US and in Australia, but I guess it just will really depend on on the region and the local health services that are available. How do you think FGMC will end? What do you think needs to happen? I think there needs to be more awareness of it. As you mentioned earlier, it's definitely a taboo topic. It's something that women or communities or nobody really talks about openly. But these trends are changing and we're seeing this global movement to break the silence. And I'm using this term, which is a term that's used by There's No Limit Foundation, which is an organization in New York that is currently right now at this moment doing a Break the Silence Week project in preparation for Zero Tolerance Day next week, where just open conversations and open dialogue about this issue is key in this process and not shying away 
from talking about it openly also with some cultural competence and armed with the right and correct information. Again, we talked about misconceptions before. And so along with this awareness raising and open conversations, it needs to go hand in hand with education and collaboration as well. If all organizations that are working on this globally are and within a specific country, for example, are taking on this issue collaboratively, then collective impact is possible. And at the same time, again, we want to be respectful of the different approaches that some organizations take or some cultures take or some survivors want to take in putting this forward. And we touched upon that a little bit with the different terms being used or the different methods of approaching communities. Because, and we also don't want to be marginalizing minorities that are already feeling the pain of this anti-immigrant sentiment, and we want to work with communities. And so what is key and what is happening on the ground right now is that survivors who are leading this movement are the ones taking on this issue within their communities. There are many communities who are saying no and are also either supporting them or there are many survivors who aren't aren't getting that support from their communities and, and are getting pushback. But the key again is to keep trying and make sure that communities are well educated and well aware of really what FGM is, what happens to women, what does this mean for women to experience FGM and what does it mean to stop it. And so I think uh, that collaborative awareness raising is key and supporting survivors is key because their voice and their experience is front and center of this fight to end the practice. And so they need to be heard and they need to be supported. Yeah, yeah, really good points. And what do you think will change in the future of FGMC advocacy? So I guess this is more in terms of how have you seen the changes that organisations have been doing, the laws, the rallying? What do you kind of see in the foreseeable future for FGMC advocacy? Well, advocacy needs to be multi-sectoral, so it needs to come from all facets of the society in order for it to be effective. So if we have frontline healthcare providers who are also advocates for ending the practice, if we have teachers, if we have the government putting out laws and guidelines and regulations against that criminalize FGM, while also making sure that these laws have the provisions in place to raise awareness and educate communities and involve the communities in this whole process, then we need to make sure that this is happening. We talked about the importance of research. Researchers, academics, policymakers all need to be on board in addition to the advocates and civil society organizations that are working on this. So again, a multi-sectoral approach is needed and that's We're beginning to see how this is playing out within different countries. Maybe some countries are doing better than others, but we see that push to make sure that all different elements of society are on board in this conversation, as opposed to, let's say, a country putting out a law on FGM and that's it. 
you know, you can't just do that without taking on this process of implementation and education and making sure other different elements of law enforcement, for example, also needs to be on board. Educators need to be on board. Healthcare providers need to be on board. Community and religious leaders have to be on board. Survivors, again, are front and center in this conversation. Everyone needs to be on board. And what we're trying to do as we are part of a global network, the U.S. and FGM network is also part of a global platform that is growing right now to end this practice and really pushing for collaboration on this issue. And within the U.S., the network itself is also taking on that multi-sectoral approach and ensuring that all different individuals and organizations from different sectors of society are working together and are united in their messaging and their approach and in their passion. Yes, so important to be working together. For those that may be listening, that might be, you know, sitting at home, they might be someone that know, has, you know, heard about this practice or it might be completely new to them. How can we, I guess, as a general public, increase awareness or how can we campaign or how can we support the, the cause? First, I would say to educate yourself about this issue. So looking to reliable resources to really understand what's going on. And I'm going to pitch our network as a resource for... <laughs> yes, go for it. If you take a look at our member list and see and check out their websites as well, and you'll find a plethora of information that really goes into detail about understanding this issue, both in the U.S. and globally, understanding the social norms that lie behind it, and making sure that, you know, looking into resources on how to approach this in a sensitive and respectful manner, and then going forward and supporting the movements through being involved in different activities and events and raising awareness, whether if, you know, for students, I would say on their college campuses, for professionals, I would say within their workplace, and supporting the grassroots organizations that are working on the ground through donating to these causes and making sure that so that they have the funding and support from the communities that they're in to do this. Many of the grassroots organizations that are mostly survivor-led are actually low on funding and don't have the resources to work within the communities that they're in. And so many individuals who are in different states, for example, I'm talking about the United States, but let's say in different cities across the world, look for your local grassroots organization that is doing work. I would say support the local movement. And if there's nothing locally done, then think about starting something yourself, you know, and even if it's just a small campaign or a tabling or a walk or a sign or a little protest or whatever it is to make sure that people are aware of the issue from within that local impact and then move forward uh, to a global platform. Yes, from small things, big things grow. So you mentioned that the US and FGMC network has a plethora of information. Are you able to just to let us know where you are on socials? How can people find more about the network? Well, you can follow us on Twitter at 
USNFGM Network. And you can also visit our website at nfgmnetwork.org. And so on Twitter and on Facebook, we are at USNFGM Network. And on our website, we're nfgmnetwork.org. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for your time today, uh, Dr. Khan. We're recording in preparation of Zero Tolerance Day, which is the 6th of February. So we really appreciate your time and just sharing a topic that wouldn't necessarily you know, would be listening on our average podcast and such an important topic to be talking about. Thank you for giving us this opportunity to be talking about this and for your support for Zero Tolerance Day and using that platform to raise awareness. Yes, our pleasure. How eye-opening was this episode? Until I spoke with Dr. Khan, I had no idea how prevalent FGMC was in developed countries. In the third and final segment of this special series, we speak with Naima Dido, a FGMC survivor. Naima resettled in the US in 1989 through refugee status and was the first woman in the history of her family to read and write and the first person to go on to college. Her experience has guided her through dedicating two decades of her life to women's empowerment and development work in the US and Africa. If you share one episode of the Heal Thy Skin podcast, I urge it to be this special series. Advocates believe that if enough focus and resources is put on education and inclusion rather than judgment and exclusion, we may just see an end to FGC in our lifetime. How amazing would that be? Thank you so much for listening. Until next time, stay skin powered.